This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Rum, do you hear something? Yeah, what is that? It's a bird. No, it's a plane. No, it's not that. Ooh, it's the best of the buzz with Bill. Is that right, eh? It's a good sign of things to come. Commentary on trending headlines with veteran AMI producer Bill Shackleton. Well, now. Billy! I say Shaq! Yep, I'm back. Shaq, welcome back. How are you today? We're doing good on this rainy, gloomy type of day, but, it, you know, it takes the humidity off, I guess. You hear mm. some thunder? Yeah, yes, indeed. Yeah. That's yeah. A, I, I I always love that. I was saying whenever we bring the weather people on, yeah, how much rain are we going to have in Ontario? I just, <laughs> I love that when it's, when it's going to be a rainy summer and people are, oh, man, that screws up all my plans. I want to camp, but they say it's going to be rainy, and mm. I just, oh, that's too bad. First of all, you can't trust it anyways. You may not have to cancel your plans. Well, but uh, what I like about it is I can sit outside on the balcony, even with the rain, it doesn't come in because there's an overhang. So I can just. That's nice. Yeah. And it brings the humidity. I I do too, Bill. I love it. Until I fall asleep and wake up and hearing it hit the rail or something. What the heck is wrong with the air conditioning? What's going on? That's right. Something's caught up in there. Uh, Bill, what are we starting with? We've got some nice items to talk about. Yes, we're going from museums to cars. But do this first one. Dutch Museum fills blind spot for vision impaired. So basically from the, uh, yeah, from Reuters, I guess this is one. Um, In the Utrecht Holland, what they've done is they've created an exhibit called the blind spot. And it features uh, exhibits from artists that have... um, uh, you know, painted fruit and nuts or any kind of like things that you can touch in their exhibits. So a blind person, of course, can't see it. So what they've done is I wasn't able to find out whether they've used a 3D printer or whether they've used real fruit and nuts to depict what's in the picture. But either way, you can touch the exhibit and know what it, what exactly it is. And sighted visitors are actually encouraged to blindfold themselves to see, you know, basically what they would get out of it. And this is just an interesting way, and I think we've talked about this before, of making art accessible to the vision impaired. And this all started when the two designers of this of exhibit did a presentation on art, and a vision impaired person was happened to be in the audience. So they basically figured, how can we make not only this, the art that we just presented accessible, but if we make um, an exhibit in this museum accessible, how do we make the art so that a vision impaired person can know what the paintings depicted? The, um, the great conversations that I've been lately hearing and being part of in the arts community, especially for visual arts, Billy, uh, and making art accessible is having that authenticity of the original artwork, right? Maybe certain pieces of visual art just inertly are not accessible for blind and low vision person without visual description or something like that. Um, but to go ahead and make something more tactile and appeal to the other senses, like the sense of smell, is uh, just like a way of further interpreting this art. 
like in this article, people are mentioning how the, or I guess one visitor mentioned how yeah. um, the art was stuck on, like the cheese and stuff was stuck on really nicely and they didn't have to, it didn't fall off. And that in itself is some kind of interpretation. Instead of being on a flat surface, you're still lining up things in a, in a slant or, uh, you know, upright. So there's just continuous interpretation of art. So basically the premise is we're trying to give more people access to feel or view or experience the art in some way, right? Mm-hmm. It, it always makes me laugh when I hear about making something accessible, such as a building, for example, and them saying, well, you know, but the designer gets frustrated because it takes away their ability to be creative. Now, I, again, I'm sure there's not all designers. I don't mean to paint all with the same brush, but I've heard that as a one of those, well, what do I do? You know, to make it accessible, do I just make it a block this and that and do that? And Well, no, you, you can be just as creative. You you can, but do think and keep in mind accessibility. I mean, yet you see a lot of places creative, uh, created that are accessible and are wonderful, as, as designers would say. That's their art in their way. And I love it when you see these different things going on because, Bill, a lot of time these these accessible displays accessible things in this aspect we're talking in museums as rum says it's its own art yeah well in this particular exhibit as romney pointed out you wouldn't know that the stuff was, that the table was slanted um because you couldn't see it or you wouldn't know how the food was stuck to the the fruit and nuts were were stuck to the table you wouldn't even know no but you could feel um, it all right. You and, could feel it. And yeah. that's the beautiful thing. It's made accessible in that aspect so that you can get closer to it. So that And the pres- perspective is almost like kind of leaning over it, looking down, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, it's on an angle. But it would be the same if it was flat. You'd be able to reach more of it. And I love that. Um, the smell thing, we all giggle and say, oh, good grief, you know, it's old cheese. Huh? But <laughs> it's stuff part like of the that. experience. Yeah. It is. And it, it, it is the one thing people go to when it comes to the blind. But here, an exhibit where they say, no, we know you want to touch. Because how many places do you go, is it okay to touch this? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, uh. Or, you know, special days dedicated to uh, specific art exhibits being accessible. But this is like, it's just in there. They're encouraging other people to experience using the other four senses as well, right? So there's just a lot of... Um, incredible thought going into something like this to say experience is more than just visual. It's more than Mm -hmm. just interpreting something visual into a visual description. And accessibility does not take away art or creativity. Exactly. No, and what it does is it goes one step further. I mean, you talk about visual description. I mean, there are museums where you can get visual descriptions of things, but that isn't the same as being able to touch the thing, right? No, no. And interpret your way yeah. Of what you're looking at, if something is called food on the tabletop and you touch it, it's your interpretation as opposed to someone walking up, oh, look at that, that's food on a, on a tabletop mm-hmm. with a whatever kind of tablecloth. You have your own interpretation in saw the way you can see it. This is a Canadian story. One-handed musician 
um, teaches himself to play guitar, now <clears throat> hopes to help inspire others. So this is an interesting story, a Canadian story from CTV News. Um, basically, this 18-year-old lad was born um, with, with below the elbow with, with one hand missing. So essentially what he's done... Apparently there was an accident. This the umbilical cord was wrapped around his hand. Oh I don't know how how that affected, <laughs> but it did. He has had to play. He's taught himself to play guitar. What he's done was he's built a device, and that's what the article called it—a device, a stump. Um, um, so he's made the, made this thing that he wraps around his stump with with a pick, so he can play a guitar. And he wants to teach others that, um, you know, one of these things where, um, you know, try it. You never know. Go for it. And he there's a video accompanying this article. And boy, can he ever play. That is That's awesome. Great. <laughs> Wonderful. That's good And news. he plays. He also does a piano and a ukulele. So, so boy, a, oh boy. He's a rock star. He's oh yeah, and come from a place where, again, we we talk about this kind of stuff <laughs> all the time. Where you come from a place where you think or you're told or the influence is that you can't do these things. Police seek more control over phone alerts. This is from the actual, from the, um, I guess, from Globe and Mail. Uh, so essentially, the police chiefs, um, the provincial police chiefs, are uh, trying to convince the government to basically uniform the rules over who or who can 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 put out a phone alert. The problem basically is that um, depending on the province you're in, the, the, the there, there's basically a hodgepodge of regulations that that regulate number one who can act, who, what can you put on a, on a phone alert, and number two how do you craft it. So you can imagine basically what they're saying is we want to be able to if 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 there's a terrorist running around or a man with a gun running around in your city. Um, they're basically they have to go through a lot of red tape before they can actually not only craft a message, but if if they're allowed to do it, and in what way. And by the time they get the okay from somebody else who has to get it from somebody else, um, there could be a shooting or there there could be a major catastrophe, and it's all because they can't get the message out. And you know. Bill, um, after what was happening in Nova Scotia, the mass shooting, right? It That's feels right, like right. we stepped up a bit, but it, I, I kind of agree. It feels like we're still um, not caught up into how quickly we could get information and how that's happening right now. Like right now we, we know about, um, you know, amber alerts and weather alerts and different things like that. But 
I think it's the feeling in the moment where you're shook up and you're trying to figure out what to do at the same time. So when you're talking police force, you know, people jumping into action and being able to do that, but also let people know what's going on so that people can be on the the lookout or uh, head to safety or whatever the, the issue is and not being able to do it as quickly as possible. We now have the technology to make that happen, you know, to, to protect people and to keep people safe, but, uh, and also to alert people. But I feel like it's not, there yet we're not utilizing it as well as we could be and i thought that the crtc regulated that but i don't want to get into too many issues about that but apparently they don't apparently it is up it's it's under provincial uh you know legislation Mm -hmm. and you're right i i i think we have to change that i think we have to make it more universal and that's what the police chiefs are trying to do is let's get a set of guidelines in that every we can all work with and yeah you know and not have to jump through hoops to let that's right. um, yeah. people know what's going on because i mean how many times have you looked at the news way later or you know scrolling through things and realized something happened in your neighborhood that you weren't even aware of right until it's out there already and some of these things are are seriously scary so um, yeah, I can I can understand that people are starting to feel the anxiety, and especially our, our law enforcement. Yeah, um, and and and, may, and maybe they got the news out, but it's, it's ten people have been already been shot or whatever. Of course, so, exactly. Yeah, that has yeah. to change. That has to change. Next one. Now you like cars, and I had this stored away because uh, you and I both like cars. Mm-hmm. Well, the Henry Ford Museum celebrates motorsports, so essentially they've created a new museum in the in 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 uh, Dearborn, Michigan, um, created by Ford and General Motors. That celebrates a history of motorsports, and this nice. article is taken from the Associated Press. Some of the things that they have is the Rosa Park bus. Remember Rosa Park? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What she did. Um, the museum that, or or the the, the limousine that uh, John F. Kennedy rode. The Abraham Lincoln chair that that he rode in. Wow. Um, so you're talking about the whole history from um, soapbox derbies um, to Indy cars, from stock cars. And drag racers. And you know, Bill, some of these things I think they got from other facilities too. I think some of them have come from the Smithsonian over there. Uh, They may have. Yeah, Um, I I think so. I I feel like I've known that that bus was elsewhere. Maybe it's always been there. Um, But as for the Abraham Lincoln chair, that's really cool. Well, you can picture going down Mermy Lane and, 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 you know, getting on the, the Rosa Park bus. I mean, can you imagine getting on that bus? And imagine how different it is if you get, you know, like, wow. And I just think, I just think this is, I don't know how much of it is accessible to the vision impaired, but it, it, you know, you can, the whole history of, of, of 
Henry Ford and his company and the, the whole history of motorsports. Well, soapbox I mean, if, racing like that yeah, in itself it, for kids, for everybody, like what it was and how big it became. You, you know, we hear about, you know, what the heck is that? But what it did for for advertising for fun, for kids, you know, being able to work with dad or with mom on something so cool and be so unique. And it's something that, you know, uh, really brought people together. And I mean, who, what kids today know was about a soapbox. I mean, is that where you drive a car down a hill or something like that? I'm not sure what that is. You made but them, I right? Have, you made them yeah, out of, and they were them. out of, made out of, a lot of them were made from soapboxes. But soapboxes yeah. were different back then, yeah. sort of like the cereal boxes well, back in the day when some cereal boxes were made of wood. Yeah, well, again, a very interesting place to go. I'd love to go there. Um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you get a ride in one of these cars. You never know. Yeah, well, at least you get a chance to uh, look and, you know, probably do get that chance to touch some of the things because certain things they'd have probably a reasonable amount of them, a, a bit of a plethora of some of them. Wendy's opens delivery kitchens only um, to meet growing demand. Another Associated Press article. You know, when I first saw this article, it's like, do we really need a another burger? Uh, <laughs> another, another burger in the thing, in the chain? Mm. And then I checked on the Uber Eats app because I thought for sure Wendy's was on it. Certainly in my area, it wasn't. So... Maybe it's not so far-fetched after all. And I thought I'd seen all the burger places in the world, or at least in this country. But apparently Wendy's, they're opening these ghost kitchens. And you know, ghost kitchens are kitchens with with no storefront. They're just for delivery. And they, they're, they're, they're doing this in several cities in the U.S. and Canada. And I guess if you're a Wendy's lover you know, rejoice, but it's just, apparently there is a demand for, oh, for yeah. this and, and yeah. And, and I don't know. Uh, to me, it I makes sense because when you think about now going and getting food, how many times do people walk into places when again, and I'm going to, I preface this with, of course, reminding us in, in our quote, normal time, unquote, and there's the Uber guy, the skip the dishes fella waiting for an order to be done. And they're just lined up, they're waiting, and, and your wait staff is dealing, you know, with when that food comes out, and off they go, and then they're back again. So it, to me, makes sense that why wouldn't we have places that are either for just takeout, or in this case, really for just pickups like this, where, where, the, where it's a delivery, basically, center, catered to skip the dishes, Uber Eats, or, or whatever. It, it seems to me that why wouldn't you have a space like that, that's all they do, to, to kind of cut the clutter? Well, I'm well, just thinking. I'm just thinking that um, why another burger? I mean, there's. I don't know. You know what I mean? Just ask yeah. Jeff Ryman. Well, uh-huh. you know, burgers. Okay. Burgers are really competitive too, right? You know, everybody's I, wanting to know which is the 
you know, which is the best. But, you know, it's not like these uh, fast food places have, you know, wonderful atmosphere and you're dying to, uh, you know, go sit in the restaurant. I think that, that, you know, focusing on delivery makes quite a lot of sense. Jackadoodle, welcome back. Uh, happy Wednesday. And happy Wednesday to you guys. What do you have for us today, sir? Where are we kicking it off? Well, we're going to actually, it's an interesting radio station story. Now, we've, from the um, Globe and Mail, we always talk about AMI and it's good record for staying on the air. But there's a radio station in Newfoundland, uh, WVOR, that has a pretty stellar stellar record for staying on the air. It's been off the air twice since 1924. Um, so basically, what happened was this station was it, it's it you know it it uses a a, a, a tower to transmit an AM station, and basically it was hit by a storm. Essentially. It is a sort of a, a, a religious radio station, and they have they play they specialize in old music, and I guess they do religious services. It's an example of how a radio station can connect a community, and a lot of people that use a radio station are seniors. And they can't connect to the internet, even though I mean, because of maybe they can't, or they don't have the technology, or they don't have the knowledge to do it. Mm. Um, but this station is—it has priceless, priceless recordings of Anne Murray and a lot of old music. Wow! And it's really—it's—it's it's, a tower, though. They're looking; they figure it would cost sixty thousand dollars to get a tower. And, you know, it's a lot of money when you consider that the radio station is volunteer owned. Mm -hmm. So if you go to the WVOR website, you can check out whether or not they're accepting donations um, off the air now, but on the air on the Internet because I've tuned in. Wow, that's really cool, Bill. Bill, you know, you think about radio stations and the importance to the community and and for a good while we've lost uh some of that we see it phasing out as local radio stations have less people there you know you, you you can't just service if something happens in the evening or things that we need to follow i mean uh back in the day if if there was a a, a tragedy in town you would hear about it on the nine o'clock 10 p.m news now you well, don't get a lot of that, but it's not even just that. The feel, the discussions that would be, you know, on or, or you know, help out the Boys and Girls Club or, or uh, the luncheon for whatever, uh, you don't hear as much of that community in the same way except between maybe 6 in the morning and 9 or between 4 and 6. Well, see, the other thing that's true and the thing about radio stations is they're being taken over by large conglomerates. Yep. 
I mean, radio has changed over the years. I mean, like you say, you don't have the community atmosphere um, that you would get from a station like a lot of the local radio stations, as you say, if they either exist or they've been taken over. Stations so, act like that's old. And, and and when I say that, that to have those things out there, well, who wants to know about that? Like that it's a you know, an old feel that if we start doing that, you know, and, and, and again there were the days when stations read the obituaries and I think you can count in Canada on one hand the stations that would ever do that or give the airtime up to do that now. And I there's there's a couple of stations I picked up on TuneIn over the years that are very community orientated. You you can listen to Bingo, um, and they have local guests and they have it's just totally different. But this one station um, is is really we need to get them back on the air because a lot of senior citizens, um, you know, they 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 really depend on this for church services that maybe they can't get out or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And of course with COVID it's even more important than ever that this station gets back on the air. Yeah. Yeah. And, and unfortunately out there you get pinned with that. Oh, it just feels like it should be in that province. It should, they, they out of all places should have such a station. Well, you know what? People across the country, across the world will, will have those same locations where those stations fit like a glove. Ah, interesting. They Sir, you want to squeeze your last one in, please? Kind of a funny one, so we'll get it in. Connecticut woman blames bear for package thief. <laughs> uh, for Yeah, package theft. Essentially what happened is a Connecticut woman had her Amazon package stolen off her front porch by a black bear. Apparently they have uh, evidence, they have video evidence of this. The interesting thing, now you think a bear would go after the package if there was food in it um, because bears will, I mean, it, you know, they'll go, they'll go, they'll, they'll go into your neighborhood if they can smell food. Oh yeah. But guess what was in this package? Toilet paper of all <laughs> things, toilet paper rolls. <laughs> well, I mean, for what they eat and everything like that. And the fact that it's, it's, it's soft, paper, wood, whatever, originally from trees. It's Getting ready I, for the next lockdown. Yeah, I guess so. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe bears have those COVID worries, too. Look, I want to be sure I can get this stuff. So, uh, But I guess eating it doesn't allow, well, we won't go down those roads, Bill. But, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting because you think they'll take anything. And it's probably whatever the package smelled like, the glue, the whatever, you know, the plastic itself that attracts it. But I... I I'm not surprised. You know, you have people living everywhere, Amazon reaching out everywhere to drop stuff. It's a no-brainer rum. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, why wouldn't he have? You know, that's what I'm saying. He, she. <laughs> Greedy. <laughs> I, I just, I, I mean, again... I mean, we worry about people stealing stuff. Could you imagine? Look what happened. I had stuff getting dropped off. Oh, I'm going to catch them on film. I'll fix the dirty thief. And then what do you tell the police? 
Could you go look for that black bear? He ate it right here. Like there's not even scraps left. Because you know, yeah, Bill, know. a bear's not leaving anything behind. No. No, I don't I don't think so. <laughs> no. <laughs> Could you imagine seeing him coming up and you go, Oh my gosh, I gotta get my package first, and you whip the door open and the bear, no you don't. <laughs> yeah, it could, could come in. Yeah. Oh, what? Or grab the package, it's mine. Then you gotta file a complaint with Amazon. Yeah. Yeah, and they'll just send you another one and just say, Hurry up and get it off your step in time. Bill Shackleton is a usual suspect on our show, Kelly and Company. You can catch Billy sneaking around the studio on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern on AMI-audio. And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for more of the buzz. All right, see ya. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.